a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Our guest today is a Gold Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald who has made a career out of outing bad guys. And of course, I am talking about the extraordinary Kate McClymont. And Kate's had an extensive uh, career in journalism. She's a role model and Goodness, she's had enormous courage. Oh, she stood up to so many criminals. The way she raises an eyebrow in her writing, I think it strikes terror into the heart of bad guys. A raised eyebrow from Kate McClymont speaks volumes. Kate, what an extraordinary career you've had. As a fellow journo, I've watched on incredulous at, at the work you've done and the incredible achievements. Has it always been so dramatic? Because sometimes when we look at what your reporting is about, it, it, it does seem to be uh, like that. Oh, of course not. <laughs> Except the wonderful thing about my job is that you just never know, um, you know, what each day is going to bring. For instance, um, last week I had... Um, you know, somebody come into the office who I had written about in the past in perhaps not a very favourable way and he was accompanied by a really large man and I took a look at this man <laughs> and I said, um, oh, oh, I think I just wrote about you last week. And he said, did you? And I said, yes, as Mick Gatto's bodyguard. And he went, oh, I love that because normally, <laughs> normally I'm just the driver. <laughs> <laughs> oh, promotion. So, anyway, so he now loves me. So uh, I'm getting, you know, so both of them, I always laugh at work that I say, you know what, they all come round in the end. You know, you <laughs> might, you know, write about them nastily one week but um, and. I, I, another one I had once was this um, man had been in jail for I think about 14 years and I'd written about his downfall. Anyway, so the 14 years go by and I get a call. Hello, you might not remember me but I'm out of jail now and I'd like to meet with you. Oh. And I, I always think you never show fear. Yeah. So I said, of course, come to my office because I think there's video cameras <laughs> yeah. there. Anyway, so we end up um, having um, a cup of coffee and he said, oh, yes, look, I, I want you to help me with something. I want you to do some, um, you know, it's a possibly good story. Um, and he said, because what you wrote about me, he said it was fair. But when you did describe me as possibly Australia's richest prisoner because he'd been importing drugs <laughs> right. for, you know, for many years, mm. he said that did create a few problems for me in jail. <laughs> But he said, look, he said, my problem is this, now that I'm out of jail, he said, you know, when you're a criminal, your only friends are criminals. And he said, all the proceeds of my crimes are in the Philippines and I've had to get other criminals to mine them, but it's cheaper to have me killed than it is to get my, <laughs> get my money back. And I said, right, okay. Anyway, so we talked a bit. Off he went to the Philippines where he was killed in a hit and run accident. Oh. So I never knew whether no. it and I'm was. I'm wondering what advice he was actually after. At that <laughs> I was kind of thinking you're turning oh. into the criminal's agony yes, aunt. Yes, that's yeah. right. No, but it is. It is amazing how. Um, You'll do a story and somebody said, now what we want you to do is this. You know, like especially I've got some mafia contacts. And I just say, no, look, 
um, I'm not your friend. You have to say it very gently. Yes. yes. But you do have to say, I will only do a story if there is a story there. You can't use me. No to try to put leverage on people, but it happens all the time. And you know, you know, you know it's happening. Like politicians will ring up and say, oh, I've got this great story and, of course, it's about a rival. And we have to sort of juggle. Um, just because they've got a motive doesn't mean that it's not a great story, but you've just got to be aware that... Um, Their interests are not oh, your interests. Exactly. I always or remember, our readers. Or yes, our readers. Yes. I always remember Colleen Ryan, who was our editor, of course, for a long time, and I always remember her saying that, and I thought that's a very good thing to remember. You just mentioned about not showing fear, and I am really interested in... and Because the people you're dealing with, as you've just outlined... Are scary. They're scary, and some of them very large, clearly. So how how have you managed that? Because there must have been times you've definitely been feeling some fear. Oh, look, absolutely. But I always think um, humour is really a fabulous weapon. And if you're self-deprecating and you can have a bit of a laugh at yourself, and also if people ring up to either abuse you or complain, I just always think it's better listening to what they've got to say. Don't aggravate the situation. If someone's absolutely furious, you try to listen and say, look, I can understand why you're saying that. If you'll just listen to, you know, the explanation, you know, you might see it differently. You might not. But And when people are in your face, you know, like I think, you know, one of um, Eddie Obede's relatives was just about to punch me in the lifts outside ICAC one day. And it was in front of a whole lot of people. And I just thought, don't like don't say anything. Don't don't make it worse. And another journalist said, mate, what do you think you're doing? But he was so angry. But it's the things that they say on Facebook or on Twitter. It's that lack of civility and, and the fact that people think that they can threaten you. Um, I don't know. It's the world they live in, I guess. But when you started out on your journey to where you are now, is this the world you thought you'd be in where you have to, you know, have strategies for dealing with people who want to punch you in the face? <laughs> no. No I, no, I didn't. And, in fact, I do um, I do laugh because um, when I started at the Herald, which was oh, so many years ago now. Oh, just my, a few. Oh, yeah. My first, one of my first, um, you know, you had to do, you know, as Catherine will remember, you had to do stints on, um, you know, I think mine was home decorating. And, you know, then there was something else and, um, you know, just sort of cushions and pillows and things like that. Anyway, I then got posted to the Eastern Herald. I had to be the gossip columnist. This is when the Herald actually had outposts yes. like the Northern Herald, the Eastern Herald. Anyway, that was in Hollywood Avenue in Bondi Junction. So I had to write about the comings and goings of the rich and famous. Anyway, mm. it was so tedious that I remember I got my first death threat writing, <laughs> about writing, and it was called, the gossip column was called Chums. Now, I mean, how, you know, how dangerous can that be? So I thought that we'd break out a bit of the um, Eastern Suburbs cocktail circuit. So I went to a wedding that uh, 
crime figure George Freeman's family were the entire bridal party. And in fact, I remember his little son walking down the aisle at King Copple Rose Bay carrying, a, you know, the embroidered satin pillow with the wedding ring. He's now in jail, you know, fast right. forward, you know, <laughs> he's now in jail for drug dealing. But anyway, I thought that I'd just made a rather witty observation that um, the bridal party, which consisted of, um, you know, George Freeman's wife and, you know, some of the family, that they wore sequins, which was the closest fashion accessory to armour plating that you could comfortably get away with. <laughs> Chain <Well>, mail. <laughs> they seem to not find this they at didn't all like funny. That. No, so I was getting, you know, George doesn't like this. My home phone, um, I was just in a, a rental um a terrace house with friends. They were ringing all night and day threatening me and until finally I had to go and tell work that I was getting <laughs> death threats being the society reporter. And so they said, well, let's throw you in the deep end then and make you No, this. well, in fact, what they did, what they did was they, um, they, I had to go to the police and as soon as I went to the police, they were intercepting all my calls. So I never got one more call. And later, one of George Freeman's, um, you know, associates said, oh, that time you complained about George. Little did you know that all those phones were being routed through our SP bookmaking network at, at the Edgecliff Telecom Exchange. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we just knew not to... Um, say anything on your phone anymore. I love the so. way you say you had your first death threat. I, yes. I, I had one in my entire career at the Financial Review and I was so traumatised. The security guard had to walk me to my car. So, oh, What was your death threat over? Um, one of the fallout from the Spedley inquiry, which you oh. might recall, so a tiny little boutique investment bank. Brian Yule Brian in jail. Brian Yule yes. in jail. And it was the heroin addict accountant who worked for him who was sentenced. I wrote up the sentencing, so he rang and said, I know where you live. I'm coming for you. So that was my one and only, oh. and I, I found that traumatising. <laughs> clearly, traumatising. See, enough. you work in advertising. People hate you, but they don't. They don't want to kill you. Did you always want to be a journo? Was no, it? I no. didn't. <laughs> no, I sort of wish I could say that, but in fact. Um, I did, I started doing arts law at Sydney Uni and I did an honours degree in English literature, which is still my great passion in life. And I never finished my law degree, but I went to work in a publishing company and it was absolutely diabolical. So I was there for 18 months and we were publishing this encyclopedia that was going to be for sale at the at the grocery stand in the supermarket. Ah. So you, it was you high class. High class. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so in the 18 months that I was there, I think we got as far as C. So I handed in my resignation <laughs> and then I went down to N and I typed my name into Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> <laughs> but sadly someone edited it out. And did that. Oh, yes. Darn it. Yes. I hate it when yes. sub-editors actually, you know, pick something. <laughs> Thing up like I know. That. But going even further back, tell us about where you grew up and your parents and your brothers and sisters and, you know, how you ended up being a woman who can laugh off and deal with, you know, what most other people would be scared to death about. Well, look, I grew up on um, a farm outside of Orange and um, some members of my family are still there. And it was a really idyllic childhood Um I had um, two brothers and a sister and we had to work on the farm every morning before school. We had to feed the calves. We had to, you know, help during the holidays. And it was, I don't know, it was, it was lovely. 
And I sort of think that I didn't ever have one of those going to shopping mall lives. Our lives were all revolving around, I think, um, not just outdoor activities, but reading was a really big thing. And all, as was watching the ABC News every night um, because there wasn't much else in the way of um, entertainment, really. Did you go so, to school locally? I did and then I went away to boarding school. To boarding school, school. Yeah, mm. yeah. And where did you get your sense of justice from? I don't know. Look, it's hard to say. I, I don't know but I just can't bear um, people being treated unfairly. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether it's my parents but I've always had quite a strong sort of ethical understanding of what is what's right and what's what's fair and what's just i mean that doesn't mean that you know often you just feel exasperated that you can't yes <laughs> that you you can't fix things but it would be good if you could It's a bit of a, a, a jump, and perhaps, but in not in not in all ways, to, to ask you a bit about um, the Me Too campaign and what's been happening with that, because your work there has been extraordinary, um, quite devastating too, isn't it? Um, watching what happened um, with the revelations about Don Burke and Craig McLaughlin. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that work has unfolded for you and what you think of the campaign, sort of in, in a more general sense? Look, it it unfolded. You know, basically, you know, everything goes back to Harvey Weinstein yeah. in the the US. And Tracy Spicer put out a call on social media saying, you know, look, we really need to have a look at what's happening here. And she was so overwhelmed by the material that came in. She asked um, Fairfax and um, the ABC if we could help her have a look at some of the. Um, you know, the, the claims that had been made. And it's one of those things that making claims and getting them to publication yeah, are really, really difficult. And um, you have to be careful because of defamation laws. I mean, Craig McLaughlin is um, currently suing us. So it's not an easy thing to do. And we, we tried to have parameters of more than one complainant. You know, we had, you know, for instance, we had one case of this woman who alleges that she was raped by quite a, a prominent media figure. But our problem was, in the end, you have to think of yourself as being um like the police in a way, because you think if we're sued, we're going to have to prove this. And when you've got a he said, she said, and it, it does, you know, you, you try not to hurt people's feelings by saying, I believe you, but as the media, um, I just don't think we have the resources in able to prove that conclusively one way or another. And some of those cases, you're better leaving it to the police who might have tools that, that we don't have. But the thing that really interests me, and I wish we could go down this way, was that in the US, I think, it, I'm, I'm not sure whether it was the Washington Post, but they did this fantastic investigation on the automotive industry in Chicago. Oh, yes. Yes, and, and looked at the poorer workers because I sort of feel like 
um, a lot of our victims are well known or the perpetrators are well known, but that systemic um, harassment that a lot of women in um, lower paid jobs have to put up with, and it's because you know, they might be a single parent with four kids if they don't keep that job. And I I wish that um, we had the resources to, you know, have a look at some of those examples. Do you think though, I mean, and I've wondered about this because just before Me Too, I published the book Unbreakable, which Catherine contributed to, which is about women talking about their own, and Tracy contributed to it as well, um, their experiences, as it turns out, of sexual harassment or assault. No one named their perpetrator in that book. but And they were all in, not all necessarily in the workplace, but I often wonder, doesn't all this come together? And in a way, the women who do name their perpetrators, the famous women in Hollywood or even here who may come out and talk about it, doesn't that in a way make it that much easier perhaps for all women to speak up about what's happened to them? Yes, look, I think it does. And I think it makes organisations more receptive. Like finally they're starting to understand that it's not all right to, you know, treat women in this way. So I think it can only have been an absolutely fantastic thing to have happened. And I just hope that it will lead to permanent changes because at the moment, I think young women are feeling more empowered to say, are you joking? You're not going to do that to me. Whereas I look back amongst um, women that we know and it was sort of like, okay, if you've got quite a strong personality, which probably we three here do, you can fend for yourself and say, you know, buddy, out of line. But for a lot of people, having that confidence to say that never came easily. And a lot of people put up with it. I've had, as I'm sure you have, had endless discussions with my friends about what happened to them. Some of them are... Oh, it's appalling. It's appalling. And also, I would be the first to say, and I wrote about it uh, for for the book, Unbreakable, but but also in my earlier part of my career, I didn't feel as though I could speak up. I felt I felt incredibly embarrassed. All the things that we know uh, that women who face this stuff feel. So I think I think you're right. And and as you get a bit older, one of the one of the advantages actually of getting a bit older is that, you know, you absolutely that's not on. And also we can speak out uh, for perhaps younger women as well. But I I think you're right. I think the really uplifting part of me too is it obviously legitimizes um, a lot of these issues, which we've been told for years we had to prove or we were making up. And I think that there's a huge sort of liberating part of that. And I think younger women in particular are hearing that, they're listening to it. They may not identify as feminists, but really what they're hearing is this is important. And we see thousands of other women saying this right across the spectrum. And I think that's incredibly empowering. It actually gives them a feeling of power, which is so important. Mm. Well, some of the saddest stories are from very elderly women yes, who have told yes. their story for the very first time of something that happened to them decades and decades and decades ago that often took them out of pursuing a career they really wanted to pursue. I think that has really resonated with me is that a lot of the people that um, we spoke to, especially in the, the Don Burke case, said it actually ruined my chosen career. I just felt that if this was what journalism or television was like, I didn't want a part of it. And the fact that... I think women in advertising, there was a lot of that too. And it was the fact that 
if you were a man and you were financially successful to your industry, that was far more important to your workplace than any personal consequences of what that person might be doing, whether it be harassment or anything else, is that money always talked. Did that brings me back to the connection in a way between your investigation of corruption and organised crime, which is really all about power yes. and the misuse of power, and Me Too, which is at bottom all about power and the misuse of power. Correct. I know they, they do overlap in so many ways. Um, and, you know, at the heart of it, some of the allegations, not all of them, but some of the allegations you look at, there is an element of criminality um, behind them. And that's why you have to, if you're going to investigate it, you need to do it um as thoroughly as you possibly can because some of these allegations, you know, are quite serious. Were you surprised at the volume of... Yes, yes. Um, And the problem is is that uh, I think if none of us worked on anything else for another four years, there would still be stories to tell. It's And each one takes, you know, quite a few weeks to you know, to, to look at properly. But it's just really astonishing about how much there is and how many people in power. I think almost every single industry, you would have exactly the same thing having happened in it's the past. It's not a bad apple. No. That's, and that's something that I think is also... It's funny, even some of the coverage, initial coverage of Me Too talked about, oh, well, it's a few men. Actually, what we know is there's quite a lot of them across lots of different areas. I think every areas. single industry, every, every workplace yeah. would have at one stage had one of these people. Do you think, do you think that one of the reasons why we might be finally, if you like, lifting the dirty, dusty, yucky old rug off this... I'd say millennia long, you know, problem is finally because we're getting more women in positions of power, you and Tracy, for example, with the kind of background that you have, getting more women on boards and in editorial rooms saying, yes, we will talk about this. Do you think it's there's a, there's a momentum being built in all sorts of different ways, not just by the women coming forward? Look, I'm not sure that I would agree with that because I still don't think that we have enough women in positions of power to have made that sort of change. I think it is more the, dare I say, I think it's Donald Trump. Ah, yes. I I sort of feel that... (laughs) I agree um, with that. It was, I think women, not just in America, but around the world, as soon as we heard those demeaning things about, you know, grabbing people... The pussy grabber. You thought, okay, that's it. That's it. The fact that he sailed on in with barely a blip. So I feel that when Harvey uh, Weinstein came up, it was sort of like a delayed reaction. Okay, that cockroach scampered out one time. We stamped on it, but it, it still scampered off. Now we're really going to stomp on it. But if there hadn't been prominent women involved... I just don't think it would have got off the ground, you know. And and I'm I'm talking about that sad celebrity factor. Yes, the yeah, fact that yes. oh my god, it's celebrities. Yes. Therefore, yeah. all the papers write about That's it. Right. it. It gets the attention. Mo- yes, yep. it gets the attention. So, look, great that it happened, 
but the worldwide fallout. The use of social media. So yes. the barriers to entry have been lower. That ability to um, bypass, if you like, some of the traditional media outlets um, and actually be able to post your experience. The fact that Tracy Spicer made those call-outs on yes, social yep. media. See, I think you're right that that was also the... The, the mechanism of being able to get your personal experiences to somebody while keeping them confidential at the same time um, has really changed the way these things, you know, snowball and get a life of their own. I do think, though, that um, in some instances, you know, people have to be careful not to conflate um, being, you know, a sleazy person who puts the hard word on somebody, but when rebuffed, goes away. Yeah. That is not unlawful. There's no. nothing to stop you, you know, making, um, you know, an advance to somebody. It's when you use your power to punish should you be rebuffed. So, and I just think that the movement has to be careful not to dump all that behaviour. Yeah. In a way, there will be mistakes and there will be, yes. you know, that's inevitable in a way. But I do also think more and more, remembering back to my own career in, you know, male-dominated advertising agencies, I think a lot of this kind of sleazy behaviour, when it didn't go to criminal, although I did work in an ad agency where <laughs> a senior manager was marched off the premises, but nevertheless, when it didn't go to criminal, which it mostly didn't, there was still a message being sent. And the message that was being sent was, this space is a male space. You're not welcome here. And if you insist on being here, then you have to cop whatever treatment, humiliation, sexist language, sexualization we want to give you. And I do think that in the past women have tried you know, or felt that they had to be one of the boys. Yeah. Yes. They had to behave that in a similar... That was kind of the rules of the game though, wasn't it? You know, I mean, I'm not I'm not paying out on that because I think that I understand that that was, you know, that was how, how you got there. Now, it's it's not a long-term strategy, but I think for a lot of women who fought their way up the ladder, yeah, that, that seemed to be the way that you fitted in and that, that, that you became a member of the club. So it's it's been a tough one. Um, you've got a great network of um, women friends uh, and, and professional contacts and so on. How, how important is that, having having a good sort of hinterland of, of female solidarity? Well, I sort of feel sorry. That's the thing I feel most sorry for men about is that women have, you know, sustaining fabulous friendships and they're supportive. They have your back. They look after you, you know, when things go wrong. They drink wine with you. They yeah. <laughs> Yes, and I sometimes just think wine. I just sometimes think men haven't created that same kind of not not everyone. I mean, I, I know people that go and play golf with their buddies and talk about things, but it's funny when I you know talk to friends. You know, okay, do your husbands chat to each other? You know, how's the weather, mate? Um, or, or about yeah. sport? They you know, and someone was saying you know th that somebody was their wife was going through a very difficult battle with illness and they tried, you know, the husband tried to say, how's it, you know, how's it all going? Oh, yep, yeah, fine, fine. And it's that inability mm. to actually open up and say, actually, it's not fine. It's, and I feel terrible. Yeah. Women bond, it often seems to me, through shared vulnerability and weakness. We confide our failures and then we basically 
reframe it so that the person leaves the chat feeling better instead of worse. Men hide their failures. Actually, that's an interesting point. Yeah, or don't want to, yes, don't want to admit And they bond through competing rather than... It's competitive rather. And I think culturally um, Australia probably has some particular tendencies in that direction. I'm not suggesting... Uh, that we alone have those sort of masculine characteristics. But I do think it's sort of amplified a little bit here, uh, that stoic sort of, you know, and we can only sort of muck around or or talk about, yeah, how we're competing rather than and other topics. And that hinterland, as you beautifully put it, <laughs> I love that description. Um, has that helped you and is it particularly important now where you're dealing with what is a very difficult area. I mean, there's a lot of pushback. There were letters from French movie stars and, you know, there's been a lot of kind of a trying to contain, to minimise, to shrink the whole Me Too, um, if we can call it a movement. It's a spontaneous one rather than an organised one. Um, does that hinterland of women who support you and look after you, does that help you? Does it strengthen you? Look, I think it. I think it does in in many ways, um, but I also think that as long as you can have civilized debates about these things, it's when um, I just find on social media this disintegration into these terrible affronts that some men feel about this Me Too movement, as though somehow women are questioning their masculinity or branding them all as serial pests. Um, I just think, calm down. Mm. It's not, you know, it's not as though everyone is behaving like this, but it's been, and and then other people, other men have just been so fabulously supportive, especially men whose, um, you know, wives, mothers, daughters, or even their work colleagues, they've seen this happen. So... You know, and they've been such a, a great source of support through this. It's almost like they feel, I think, some of them and the ones you've just described particularly um, feel that they can now speak out as exactly. well. Because yeah. I think a lot of them, and there is a lot of empathy out there, um, but they feel very constrained about speaking up. But I also think something else that social media has oddly done, and in a weird way, as just as Trump may have done us a favour without meaning to, perhaps some of the trolls have too, in that I've often thought that the kind of trolling that women get on me- on uh, social media, particularly outspoken women, and the sexualised trolling that they get is not new. That went on, you know, a woman would be called into the office, the door closed, and, you know, she'd get that full bore from a particularly sexist and nasty boss. And if you came out and said, you won't believe what he just said to me, actually, no, they didn't believe that he just said that to you. But on social media... There it is, written, and men can see it as well as women. And I've seen a real change around in a lot of men of goodwill saying, oh, my God, you weren't exaggerating. This is appalling. I can't believe that this is said to you. So it's almost like that's happened too. Exactly, and especially um, where there's been, it's it's not just you, there's been you know, like a handful of women have been treated exactly the same way. So men have sort of, I can't believe this went on and and that X did this. But often they would see X doing this and it was just worth their while to turn a blind eye. So I think now there's a collective guilt that people also did not do enough. And women didn't. 
you know, it wasn't worth women's while to, I mean, I used to scrape young women up off the ladies in advertising agencies who'd been treated appallingly, but actually there wasn't a great deal I could do except put them back together again. Well, you faced so many penalties. Well, if I'd marched in and said, how dare, and I, you know, would occasionally say, don't, that person does these terrible things, but it would just be denied. And then you're left high and dry. So, Kate, onward (laughs) and upward (laughs) as ever. Um, I'm just wondering about, you know, that sort of energy for every day. Where do you get that from? You just, I mean, obviously you absolutely um, love what you do. You do it supremely well. Um, Where do you get all of that kind of motivation from, though, every day? I don't know. It's just so intriguing. I just wish that there were more hours in the day because the thing that upsets me is that um, I just get flooded with people, you know, wanting me to investigate their stories. I think they see you as a sort of, you know, a bit of a crusader, but that's not my role. It's not my role to, um, you know, take up the cudgels for uh, just one person. I I mean, depending what has happened to them, but... I just feel terrible sometimes saying, look, I, I'm really sorry. I just can't do this story. I just don't have the, um, the the time to do it. I've already got these things. And look, where I can, I try to sort of um, get other people to do them. But I think as the journalism um, fraternity shrinks, the pressure on you as a journalist just absolutely expands because there's so few of you Doing it, but it's such a tragedy because it is so important that you do Mm. what you do, obviously. Um, which is, you know, as a sort of an aging journalist, (laughs) I really do lament it's um, very different from the newsrooms that we join. Um, Look, when I started, we had a religion reporter, a high court reporter, um, an industrial reporter, we had so many people doing so many things, and it's 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 more important even than the nostalgia of totally understandable, of journalists have been around a while. But it's incredibly important for the functioning of our democracy and our society that people can find, you know, a voice, a a channel by which they can challenge the powerful. Now, I know social media does that to some extent, uh, but Me Too would not have gone as far as it has without mainstream media and investigative journalists and, um, you know, wonderful Rowan, um, what's his last name? Uh, Farrow, Rowan Farrow. Oh, Ronan Farrow. Ronan Farrow, who wrote that wonderful piece in The New Yorker about Harvey Weinstein. So we, we, we can't do without this. I think one of the interesting things about that was what the powers that be were doing behind the scenes to try to shut up journalists. Yes. So... You know, Harvey Weinstein had hired basically, you know, former Israeli secret yes. service. They had other media on board um, to try to discredit people. And I think that that's something that we have to be aware of here. And it, it still upsets me sometimes when you see other media sort of take adversarial roles. If someone's being sued, they'll write you know, that they'll be sort of dancing on the grave yes. of that media organisation. I think we need to be a little bit more collegiate mm. about this. And recognise that it's not just a business. It's actually an, an indispensable part of a functioning democracy. Which is why... 
journalists do what they do. I mean, without sounding grandiose, and we're not all doing uh, it at the level that Kate is, but it is really the, the, the reason many journalists do what they do is because they feel it does matter. It is, it is much more than a, than a salary. Keep doing what you're doing. I love reading your stuff <laughs> and I feel, I, I, I feel in a way that you've got our back, not just women, but uh, the proper functioning of our society with integrity and justice and that's so important. Well, thank you very much and I'll, I'll do my best to uphold <laughs> no, <laughs> no your pressure. values. No, no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> no, no expectations. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts.